Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. We continue then looking together in uh, 1 Peter, and uh, you will have noticed perhaps that it isn't as exciting as the other verses or as easy to embrace because it started with the word submit, not a word that we commonly like to apply to ourselves. But before we get to the submit word, I want us to pick up the journey in verse uh, 11. Technically, we had those verses last week, but I think in the NIV, it sections it from uh, verse 11 with kind of good reason, because verse 11 and 12 set a pattern of behavior that then gets applied to different contexts. So 11 and 12 is kind of like the, the template, and uh, then we, we see it applied to governments, or to ruling authorities, then we see it applied to the workplace, then to the home, and then to uh, the church. Let's remind ourselves of, of the situation that was, in a sense, uppermost in their minds. It was a hostile environment. They were living, as it were, behind enemy lines. They'd made themselves an enemy of the state, and to a certain extent, enemies of other cultures around them by their declaration that Jesus was and is Lord. Should they blend in, pretend that they're really just like everybody else, that there's no real difference between them as Christians and the rest of society in order to cope with this sense of being different from the others? Or should they hide away, keep secret the fact of their faith and who they are. And Peter, as we've been thinking about through chapter 1, reminds them that they need to embrace their difference. They are called to be holy, to be other, to be separate, to be special, just as God himself is holy. And he just brings that to a conclusion here as he ends the story, as it were, the journey of chapter 1 and takes us into this next phase of the letter. Embrace their difference by stopping sinning. Stop sinning. Now there you are. That's easy, isn't it? Let's do that and go home. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles You can't hide the fact that you no longer really belong. You can't, uh, um, you can't ignore the fact that your, this place is no longer a comfortable place, a, a homely place for you to be. Your exiles there. I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which wear war, which wage war, sorry, against your soul. Our calling to be different begins on the inside, an internal decision to stand against those things that would naturally wage war against our souls. And of course, they might be different things for each one of us, but Peter is reminding these early believers, if they're really going to survive the long 
the long journey in this hostile environment, it will require not just some external allegiance, the agreement of doing and behaving in certain ways, but it will require that inner conviction, that inner determination to wage war against those things that would wage war against our souls. That's an inner resolve, an internal decision. And we see this so often in the scriptures, don't we, that the call on our lives is to sort out what's going on on the inside, because if we get the inside right, the outward expression of that will follow. It's an absolute sharp contradiction to everything that's going on in the world, where if you go to the newsagents and you pick up a magazine, which is almost certainly, nine out of ten of them are, about bettering ourselves, it will be about something that you need to do. If you follow this regime, then you will change. But the Bible says, don't start. Don't start there. That simply puts a sticking plaster on whatever is going wrong on the inside. We need to start with that internal peace, that internal uh, decision, that internal longing to wage war against those things that would come uh, against us. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Of course. Is it worth fighting in your inner world by the power of the Holy Spirit to win the battle on the inside? Yes, of course. And I I wonder whether in the back of Peter's minds were were some of the words of Jesus. I think Peter's writings, as you would expect, because he uh, uh, kind of followed Jesus and was with him as a disciple in a way that Paul wasn't, uh, you see so many kind of um, echoes of the words of Jesus. I wonder whether in the back of Peter's mind is this verse, this story that Jesus told, and then he said, hey, do you know what? You can gain the whole world, but lose your own soul. Jesus says, you can have it all, but if you haven't got your soul at peace, you've lost everything. You you can have it all, you can do all the right stuff, but if your soul is at odds with itself, then in the end you've gained uh, nothing. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their souls? And so Peter reminds these early Christians that what will really enable them to live well in this hostile world is to deal with matters of the heart, to deal with things on the inside. And I think one of the biggest struggles in our Christian life is to try and live out something that isn't yet true in our hearts. Are you with me? In fact, we were talking earlier in Cracking Communication about how so much of, of what we do comes out of what we, what we believe or what we harbor in our, in our hearts. Our thoughts and our feelings are such a powerful driver in terms of what we do. And we invite Jesus into our heart space to deal with the battle in our hearts. And who fights for us, does the Bible say? He fights for us. Greater is the one that is in us than the one that's in the world. He fights for us. So stop sinning. Tick. (laughs) And then something uh, quite remarkable is said. A tremendous hope for these early believers 
who, who are probably in danger of feeling like they can never make a difference, that the power and the might of the empire that was hostile towards them can never be overcome, Peter urges these early believers in that environment to seek out people to come to faith. It's an incredibly positive verse in what might be regarded as an impossibly difficult situation. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they, in other words, now accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the future when God comes to visit. It's an incredibly powerful verse that these little households that we talked about last week, that were trying to work out what it means to follow Jesus in this hostile environment, can believe that those who are now against them will themselves find faith. That the most unlikely people around them, who are currently against them, will one day themselves find faith, so that when God visits... They will be ready to praise him or to glorify him. Lots of debate about what it means about when God visits, when God comes in judgment at the end of time, when God turns up uh, among his people in a special way. It doesn't really matter. The point is that when God comes, they'll be ready because those who were once against him are now for him. Why? Because they've seen and experienced their good works. Isn't that an encouragement? That those people who we think it is most unlikely that they will ever be encouraged towards God because they are so aggressively against him, might themselves find faith. Think of the people in your workplace who are so against the idea of God and faith that they might find faith. People in your neighbor, the people in your family who seem so hardened against faith might one day find faith because You've lived out good lives, the good life, amongst them. Might not have faith now, but one day will. And that's the confidence that those early believers needed. And it's the same confidence that I think we need and that we are recovering it's sometimes been long periods of time when we've been in church life, and not just here, anywhere, where it's been a long time between people coming to faith. You all know that feeling, don't you? You know, we all that, it's just not happening in the way we long for it. And, and it's so easy to lose confidence that that can and still and does happen. And Peter is saying, whatever you do, don't lose confidence because I am telling you that those who seem so against you, who seem so anti, who seem so um, aggressive against Jesus and his faith, will be those who will ironically be ready when God comes because something will have changed in their hearts. In a sense, Peter is giving testimony to the same dramatic conversion that Paul was so often giving testimony to. He says, I was against God, I was against Jesus, I was trying to stamp out the Christians, and then I met him and I was changed. So for all those people for whom we have written off, Peter says, no, no. No, live in such a way because one day those that seem so against you 
will be the very ones who are ready when God visits. Our call is to what? Is to live well. Live such good lives, such well lives, such wholesome lives, such attractive lives, that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, and there's plenty of that around, isn't there? Beyond that, they may see your good deeds. And what? Say, what a good Christian you are? No. Ironically, they'll see your good deeds and see the God, see the God to whom your good deeds testifies. Because they know what we know, but we don't want them to know, is that none of us are really that good. And so when they see the good in us, they'll say, goodness me, only God could have done that. Because by themselves, human beings are not that good. You with me? And, and you've experienced that when people say, so what is it that's in you? I notice, I see, I sense something that is different to the normal range. What is it that's in you? And we testify to Jesus. So what would doing good look like this week? Ask your neighbor, what would doing good look like this week? That's our responsibility. That's our calling. That's what we get the joy of doing. To live the good life this week. To live those good deeds. To live well, even in a hostile Even in a hostile environment. And that, that races us back to one of the Psalms, doesn't it? What does it say at the end of one of the Psalms? Even in the presence of what? Of enemies, what do we get? We get a feast, the ability to live well. And we'll come back to that in a moment, I think. In a, even in a hostile environment, we can live well. Why? Because the internal peace is being given external expressions of verse 11, about what happens on the inside. Verse 12 is about working it out on the outside. And then he begins to apply these principles of internal leading to external. What does that mean in these various contexts? And we're straight into the next verse, verse 13, with that dreaded word, submit. Submit. Submit yourselves to every human Authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him. There's at least three problems for me in those few verses. The first one, submit. I don't want to. You're leaving me hanging all alone, like that's an easy one for you. When you... When you watch the news and you see the latest political interview, do you think, I'd like to submit to them? No, okay, I'm amongst friends. I'm, we're, we're getting a little realer now. We think, hmm, if, if he is my prime minister, I'm ready to submit. It doesn't really matter right now what political persuasion you are, if any. There isn't a great feeling in our country... There isn't a great feeling in our churches about the longing to submit. So that's the first problem I have. Okay, I want to be in control, 
I don't really want to submit. I want it my way. I certainly don't want those people telling me what to do. Second problem with this verse for me, please don't leave me hanging, is that it seems um, that there aren't many exceptions. Every authority. I would be happier if it was the good authorities. I would understand it a little bit if it was submit to the benevolent dictator. But every authority. And what makes this verse so sharp is that they were surrounded by people that were seeking to kill them. Peter, who wrote this, would in the end be executed by these authorities. So he kind of knows what he's talking about, if anyone has the right to say anything. Every authority. Does that include the awful ones? Yeah, it does, because actually, on almost every page in the Scriptures, the authorities are bad news, aren't they? It's very rare in the Bible, because it's very rare in life, that the authorities appear to be overwhelmingly great news for everybody. It generally doesn't work out like that. And then, just to add insult to injury, to pour salt into our open, bleeding wound, these authorities somehow are authorized or sent by him. God. That somehow God himself validates in some way these authorities that you and I are called to submit to when we don't want to. Hmm. This is awkward, isn't it? And, and I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't find these verses really uncomfortable. And try and work out what the Spirit of God is saying to these people back then, and then more significantly for us, what the Spirit of God is saying to us. Let me ask a few different questions. Maybe the question is this, where are we putting our trust? Where are we putting our trust? Or a different question, can we flourish under a hostile regime? The Bible knows hostile regimes. The Bible knows a lot about human flourishing in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, our experience of history would be, and this is another twist, that the church of God seems to flourish in greater measure under hostile regimes. You with me? If God is sovereign, if he is absolutely and completely in control, can I submit to anyone and anything for his name's sake? Yes. I think we know that the answer to that is yes. And is God big enough and sovereign enough that he can use even hostile regimes for his kingdom purpose? Absolutely. We see that testified through the scriptures, most notably when God would use pagan nations to fulfill uh, his purpose in the Old Testament. Submit is not agreeing. It's not supporting in the sense that I absolutely agree and support with everything that's taking place. But it is a posture of honor. It is a posture 
of support where that's appropriate. It is a posture of recognizing the roles and authorities that people have been given by God. I mean, those verses should scare the pants off any politician, wouldn't you think? Let alone us. If we think we've got problems submitting, they might have problems acting on God's behalf. And I love the the verse about why God sends them and that challenge of whether they do right and do wrong and so on. In this culture of cynicism, anger, and disillusionment, we are called to respect those who've been placed in roles of honor over us. That begins in the heart, doesn't it? That's a heart, a posture of respect and honor to those, even when we absolutely fundamentally disagree with something or all about them, or so we think. Even when we uh, demonize them in our hearts. And that's the point. We are called to submit, to honor, to respect those that God has placed in these roles. And honestly, I wouldn't want those kind of jobs for a month of Sundays, would you? And, And that's the posture of our heart that we should pray for them. Isn't it what uh, we read in Timothy? I urge you then, first of all, with prayers and petitions and intercessions, thanksgiving made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peacefully. Prayer changes our posture. It's hard to be really angry with someone and keep praying for them. We usually choose to stay angry with them rather than pray. But the, the, the urge is to deal with that internal peace that enables us to say, I honor and I respect that position, that role for which you hold, and I will pray for you in it. And secondly, the second posture, I think, of submission is not just to pray, but to speak well of. There is a world of difference, and we've lost it, haven't we, in our culture, but there is a world of difference between me pulling someone down and disagreeing with what they stand for or what policies they're promoting. Are you with me? There is a world of difference between those two things, but I think we can almost lose sight of there being a difference because pulling people down has been become so synonymous with disagreeing with someone's political persuasion or a particular policy or an ideology or whatever. And we end up being in conflict relationally with people and we fail to submit to the roles that they've been given. Why should we do all this? Because they deserve it? Should we do it because they're brilliant at their jobs? Should we do it because they're making this world a better place? We do it for the Lord's sake. Submit yourselves, verse 13, for the Lord's sake. For the Lord who has proven that he can work out his purpose through all kinds of people at all kinds of times to all kinds of his own kingdom ends. You with me? It's a credibly freeing place to be. I can submit to the rulers and authorities because ultimately my trust is not in them. You with me? 
I can respect and honour who they are because ultimately I don't think that they themselves will be able to save and rescue the world. My trust and my hope is not in them, but for the Lord's name, for the Lord's sake, for his honour and for his purpose. And for some maybe this same principle applies at work. You might think your boss is a right what's it. Maybe your boss is a right what's it. But your trust is not in them in the end. Hallelujah. For the Lord's sake, you can respect them and honour their office and submit to them and pray for them and speak well of them. Oh, that's hard, isn't it? In an office or a culture where nobody speaks well of those above them, the challenge to live good lives that seems so countercultural and so totally different that it shows that something has happened on the inside and it's not just you trying hard on the outside would be to speak well of those for whom no one has any time to speak well of. For whom challenging them as people has become synonymous simply with disagreeing with their approach to a particular aspect of work or the workplace. Are you with me? What if our posture changed? What if we really believe what Peter is saying, that we can live as free people because we are free? And to use that freedom to live well, to speak well. But I want to change things, don't you? I want to see things change. You don't see things change, Peter's saying, by rising up and telling people how rubbish they are. You do see things change by rising up and telling the truth, and there are hints of that, and we'll come back to that at another time. But he says you ultimately see things change by living a life that is so radically different that something contagious happens that becomes unstoppable. For it's God's will, verse 15, that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. I wonder who Peter's got in mind. By doing good, you literally shut up. You silence those who are are waffling on, making a lot of noise, but they don't know what they're talking about. People whose intent is now completely misplaced. God's will is that we would stand up and do good in such a way that people would go, I've totally lost my bearings now. I don't know how to deal with this new situation. I know how to fight people. I know how to stand against people. But I don't know what to do and say when people are clearly doing something remarkable right before my eyes. And one of the brilliant things about what God's been doing in his church all over is is just countless, countless examples of the church just standing up and starting to do good stuff all over the place. So that in the corridors of power, even there they're saying, well, if you took the church out of our culture, the whole thing would fall apart. We are by far the largest voluntary organization in the country. We are doing far more good than any other group of people together. And uh, there's all kinds of figures that quantify that in terms of the economy and so on. That's not so much to blow our own trumpets. to simply say, when we begin to do the good works that God's called us to, something begins to change. 
And instead of us having a posture of simply pulling people down or telling people that they're wrong, Peter's saying to these young believers, just get on and do a load of good and you'll see more change than you ever imagined. You know, maybe our middle class response is to write a strongly worded letter to someone. And maybe we should. But maybe what Peter's saying is get on and do some good. And that'll shake things up more than you can imagine in this topsy-turvy, upside-down kingdom. See, God, stop criticizing the government, do some good. Stop criticizing your boss, do some good. And it goes on then to talk about the home. Stop criticizing your wife, your spouse, your husband, do some good. It's not good, God's will for me, blah, blah, blah. Do some good. Why? For the Lord's sake. Remembering that you finally serve God. Live as free people. We are free. Free to serve God. Free to do good. However hostile the environment. Now there's the real challenge I think for us. That we are free to do good. However hostile the environment. And there are places around the world. Where they've learned what it is to do good. And seen incredible transformation. Simply because they followed the call of God on their lives. We can focus on what we think imprisons us. If only those people in power would make better decisions, then we would have better lives. No. We are free to live the good life. And we are to embrace that freedom. And then the leveler. And I love the way it ends. Verse 17. You've got it there in the um, NIV, which doesn't really do it justice. This is in the NRSV, which is a little closer. Honor everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. What do you notice about that? Closest outwards. You don't have to. You don't have to fear the emperor. Yeah, so it's both those things, which is a lovely symmetry, honour everybody, and then honour the emperor. The emperor was in that culture the god, you worshipped the emperor. Peter is saying, no, 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 whatever you do in terms of submitting, whatever respect and honour you rightly give to the powers that be. However much you pray for them, however much you stand up against some of their uh, ways, but honour the position that they've been given, there is only one person that you worship. So the emperor has gone from up here to... The emperor is just like one of us. And when there comes that moment of do we serve God or do we serve man... It's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. And now I think that's where we end up kind of polarizing ourselves. It's the first thing we always want to know, isn't it? Well, when I submit to the authorities, do I have to do it even if it's against God's will? Well, no. But I don't think that's the real issue. The real issue is our heart attitude to those who are in positions of power above us. Our heart attitude is to honour and respect the role, the office, the position that they have to pray for them and to speak well of them. And whilst we do that, to get on with doing good 
Because that above all else is what will shake it right up. And I I wonder whether, again, Peter remembers a few weeks after the early church, a few days maybe, and he with John is being pulled before the authorities, before the Sanhedrin. And they go waffling on about, you can't do this anymore. And Peter basically sums up his correspondence, his conversation with them and says, well, you know, what are we going to do? What's the right thing here? To obey you or to obey God? To obey you or to obey God? And he said, I, I, I can't help myself. I can't help myself. When the crunch comes, that there's no comparison because God's up here to be feared and worshipped. The emperor, the Sanhedrin, everybody else, I'm going to respect and honour them just like everybody else. I'm not going to speak ill of them. I'm going to pray for them because they've got a really important job to do. But when push comes to shove, this is the God that I honour and Jesus is the one that I worship. And when it comes head on in conflict with him, there is no decision, no discussion. This is just who we are. And, And communities of Um, of Jesus believers all over the world have seen tremendous things change by adopting that posture. We're going to get on with doing good and if the crunch comes, we know that we're going to follow Jesus. And then in a way, the killer argument from Peter as he brings the whole thing to a conclusion verse... Around verse 21, but how is it to your credit, just before verse 21, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. The greatest defense of why we should submit to people we do not agree with and yet still expect to God to do great things is the way of Jesus. He submitted to a regime who was utterly hostile to him. He submitted to people in authority that were absolutely against his cause and purpose. And what happened? The resurrection was just around the corner. And as the way of Jesus worked itself out in small households all across Turkey and beyond that Peter is writing to, and then all over the Roman Empire... The unthinkable happened, that the hostile environment eventually adopted Christianity as the faith of that same empire. That was both a good thing and a bad thing, but it was a change that they never would have imagined or ever thought was possible. And what they needed to do was to honour those that are there, to pray for them, speak well of them, but just to use the freedom God had given them to get on and do good. And that's what they did. The way of Jesus. Verse 22. Just read it for a moment with me. It's, it's just such a radical agenda. Because we want to kick and scream and tell people how wrong they are. And it's not that we shouldn't. There's plenty of moments Jesus told people how wrong they were. But this unbelievable way of the servant, the submissive way that respected and honoured people who would cause you harm. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 
When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. My friends, God will sort it out. We don't need to sort it out. If you're trying to sort it out, you'll be anxious until the day that you die. It's God's job to sort this stuff out. Such an important truth. God does write the scales. He does balance the books. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep gone astray. You were like those rulers that don't know what they're doing. You were like those pagan, um, <clears throat> the pagan empire, um, emperor and all his other kind of officials. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We can submit for the Lord's sake when we know that he's in charge. You can submit to the boss that drives you mad when you know that your life is ultimately in God's hands. You can submit to the spouse that's driving you up the wall when you know that ultimately you're both in God's hands. And this little community had every reason to be fearful and anxious. And Peter says, you're in his hands. You're in his hands. So use that freedom to do something great, to do something. Matt's going to help us just pause and respond. Just as we come to think about that, I think me and Liam have had a real privilege of seeing that in action. When we went to Kyrgyzstan, that's all they did. That's all they were allowed to do, were acts of good service. And people would say, well, why are you doing this? And then they could say, because of God. And that's one of the most hostile environments in the world. So it happens. It's still happening today. Lots to bring out. So is there something you need to do? Something good? Is there somebody or something you need to submit to? Is there something you need to stop doing? What is waging war against your soul? And you know you need to stop doing it. Or you know you need to bring it back to him. Is there a truth that you need to believe? Even though you don't believe it yet, is there that truth that you need to declare over your life? To declare over your own soul? There's a lot of talk about freedom here. And the Bible talks a lot about no longer being a slave. So is there a freedom you need to embrace to, to, to believe even within that hostile environment? Let's dare to pray that we can flourish, not only just exist, not even just to bear it up, but to flourish. And we need to question where are we put our ultimate trust? 
where can we do some good for the Lord's sake? Just pick something from that. He's spoken to you. I just invite you to think quietly, to talk to your neighbour, to pray with them, to get up and walk around. What is it you need to do to secure this and to nail this? Oh, Father, we just know that you want the good for our lives. Help us to trust you more and trust in man less. Holy Spirit, just touch the bit that you want to work on this week in our hearts. We just pray too that you don't let that go like we would keep prodding it, prodding us, bringing it up in lots of different ways until you've brought good out of it. So during this song, Lord, just pray that we'll invite people to respond with the music. You can sit quietly and secure it. You can stand and you can sing. You can get up and walk around. You can go and pray with somebody. But above all else, use this song to secure a nail and bring it to a, bring it to a head.